Welcome to Saga Craft. Myths, fairy tales, legends, stories comfort us, inspire us, and heal us. Please join us as we share stories, both old and new. More than anything, we are open to the story and its unfolding. At times, it may be one story told by one person. At times, it's the same story told through three different voices. In the end, we go where the story takes us, and we invite you to follow. I'm C, a writer, artist, and storyteller. I'm Betsy, a medium and teacher of mystery traditions. I'm Gabriella, an artist and practitioner of folk magic. We We are are magical fairy godmothers godmothers in training. Well, I want to give thanks to Merlin, to the land, to Vivian, Nimue, Ninian, and Saga. And I'm grateful for all the people who have collected those stories or cared about them enough to write down their versions of them. And I'm honoring all the people in the future that will listen to our versions that have come through for us. And I thank both of you. I would like to add Gabriel, Toph, Kanesha. Hermes and Bragi. And I would also like to give thanks to the spirits of the land and the spirits of sovereignty of land and to the many versions of stories that exist around powerful people, magical people, and how those stories allow themselves to be changed through us, through the listeners, and through the writers and editors and channelers of the ways of story and saga. And I'm grateful to both of you here with me in this story. I'm also grateful to both of you. And I want to mention, I guess, all the compassionate mistresses of magic and Frere and Green Man and all the gods of the land. I am the land. Shall I read? Humans are animals, animals with soft, delicate bodies. Nimue and Merlin are favorites. They understand that we are in a relationship, you, humans, and I. What you call magic, I call love, agape, the respectful, compassionate love for the conveyors of life. Nimue and Merlin speak to me and listen. When they come to me for help, I listen. When they came to me for help, I did what I could. Together, we are a community, an ecosystem. Separately, we are dead. It is not my preference. I feel you wanting to know about Merlin as a boy. Merlin was never a boy. Merlin was a god, a lost god, a god in transition, a confused, wandering god who floundered around looking for his pantheon a clan that only existed in his vague memory. Merlin was deeply sad, always. In many ways, it was his power, the power of loneliness, the power of absence, the power of imbalance, powers that lead to the power of magic. It is why he first came to me. He was walking through the wood. I noticed the acrid scent of despair floating on the breeze. I waved. He didn't notice. I spoke into his mind. 
Why the sadness? I asked. He said that he was in the wrong place, the wrong time, the wrong body. I knew he was right, just as I knew he was wrong. You are in the perfect place, time, and body. You are vital. I know who you are, though you may not. Come, take one of my twigs, carry it with you. Rub the twig and know that I see you. I feel you. I know you. For now, I am your family. He wrapped his arms around me. He took a twig. He carries it still. He will not show it to you. He grew and changed. He had love affairs. They ended. He could not shake the despair because he wasn't supposed to. We grew close. He came here and his sadness and his power and his godhood. He could not show it to others. They would not understand. I came to love him and he used that love in service to a leader, to an army, to a kingdom, to countless other acts of love that people deem not worth reporting. Humans are animals. Merlin was a god, a lost god, as was Nimue. She was also divine, also lost, of a different pantheon. They were not the same, except in that they were different. She, like many others, approached him to study. They thought they could learn love through study. They did learn some things, nothing they could not learn through baking, elemental magic, nature's love of her broken. It was part and piecemeal, never to be reconciled into relationship, except in Nimue. The first time she came, she was happy, inexplicably happy. I loved her immediately, not because of the happiness, because of the inexplicability. Her soul takes refuge in another realm. She is subject to the suns and storms of that dimension, not this one. It fascinated me. It fascinates me. When she visits, when she crosses the tipping point and holds more sway in this world than in her other, she is beautiful. There is no other word, though that one is not enough. I sent her to Merlin with a twig, and he brought her here in the wood to sit with me. They did more than sit, but you would not understand. That was a different time. They were different creatures. Their experience does not fit in your mind. They came to love each other as they loved me, agape, but bigger, overflowing. Others joined our family, the ones who are not animals. Spirits, border crossers, naiads, elves, fae, those who are less animal. Nimue, too, became powerful in her circle. They did not see her as so. Often, too often, she did work. Merlin got credit. Together, they took the kingdom to the zenith for that place, for that time. The humans celebrated him, vilified her. Humans are animals. It hurt them both. He was exhausted. Far from his home, his despair never abated. Halfway in this realm, her joy could not reach him. Then the stag came, not my stag, 
these days. For the first time, Merlin was happy. Merlin came to the wood. The stag took his true form, head of his pantheon, Merlin's pantheon. They would visit. Together, Merlin found ecstasy. Then they would part. Merlin's despair became untenable. And Nimue, Nimue could raise mountains and part seas. The kingdom saw her as Merlin's toy. Those who recognized her power feared it. The sons of her realm no longer had the warmth to sustain her. Such a bitter cold in this one. Humans are animals. We convened liminals, Nimue, Merlin, me. We devised a scheme, a portal under the mountain. Merlin could go home. Merlin could be happy. Nimue could be seen. Nimue could be happy. We could visit in the wood we implemented. Merlin went through the portal. Nimue took credit. The kingdom demonized her. She tipped the balance. Her spirit lies in the other realm. Her skeleton lies in the lake. Humans are animals. Animals with soft, delicate bodies. But they were not humans. We meet under the mountain. As a young boy, I would often fall asleep in the woods on the bed of the forest floor. Stretched across the cool, humming earth, I stared at the night sky, speckled with stars. I watched entire constellations move and swirl in the distance, creating shapes, creatures, worlds. Like passages in a long story, symbols and destinies appearing on the pages, imprinting me with the memories of things that were long ago and things that have not yet come to pass. My dreams were induced by the calling of owls and hissing serpents sliding through the grass, their language so much more familiar than that of man. Feeling the deep murmur of Mother Earth's song down below, I wanted to linger in this dream realm forever. I am yours, my lady. Take me, let me be with you always my young heart making vows in exchange for a longer night away from mankind and from their burdens. But always, to my disappointment, the greetings of morning would arrive. Merlin, they would whisper, scryer, seer, wise one, your time has not yet come. You must rise and meet the day. Many nights and many years passed since I could have called myself a young boy, or even a young man for that matter, if I ever was one. I witnessed kings and kingdoms rise and fall in those years. Many of these things I had played a major role to ensure the rising or falling. There are many things I have been called to do which were outside of my heart's desire, but as an oath-sworn wisdom keeper of the great goddess and of the land, I would always do her will. I have no regrets about any of my doings that influenced the powers of fate, and I would do it all over again if she asked me. It is the people and the waking world that I grew tired of, and the fast approaching tide of a new way that no power yet living could stop. Maybe she was summoned by my longing for the other world, sensing my fear and sorrow of what was to come. Perhaps she gazed into the same future looming over us, saw the danger of what we were, 
and knew we had sworn to protect it. Her name was Vivienne, but I called her Nimue, as that's what the great water guardians called her. She came with many gifts, some greater than my own, for she could open worlds and close them at will. The first time I saw her, she came walking out of the mists that were settling over the lake's shore at dawn. I was not startled by her presence, for I took her to be one of the fey ones that would sometimes watch me during my early morning walks. But then she spoke, the sound of her voice both strange and familiar, but for the most part, human. Her eyes like mirrors of the deepest pond, gazing steady into my own, seeing everything, even the secrets I have buried deeply, even the memories of stars and destinies of kings and men. She saw the young man I once was, and when she saw him, I became him and would shift into a much younger form. She could see between times, between worlds, and our love grew from that in-between place, and there our love was true, it was sacred. I taught her the language of the birds and trees of my land. I showed her all the secret pathways, only known to a sworn protector of the old ways. I taught her what plants would heal and which would poison. I shared it all with her, I shared it freely, and watched her powers expand wildly beyond what I thought was possible. Her gifts blended with my own, bringing a new magic into the world. She shined brightly as my own body grew tired and weary, and I welcomed this tiredness. I welcomed the night softened by Nemue's sweet singing in a language of forgotten spells. I am creating a beautiful home for you, my beloved, she would say. It's a place where you can rest and sleep, a place where we can always be together, outside of time, beyond time, in the world that we came from long ago. Her songs would turn into a low hum that ran into the earth and came back again to entrance me, to soothe me and induce my visions. These visions were like the star sagas I gazed upon so long ago as a young boy laying on the forest floor. This time, there was no hurry for me to rise and meet the day. The night was summoned by my beloved, and the soft earth embraced me, her promises more generous than ever. Merlin, scryer, seer, wise one, your time for rest has come. I had always known that I would meet Merlin, the greatest enchanter ever known. My godmother, Diana, goddess of the hunt and guardian of the forest, had made a prophecy to my father, Dionys, before I was born. After a splendid day of hunting before leaving him, Diana said, Dionys, I have a gift for you, I grant you, and so does the god of the sea and of the stars that the first female child that you have will be desired by the wisest man that ever lived. He will teach her the greatest part of his wisdom and magic. He will desire her so greatly when he sees her that he shall have no power to do anything against her wish. All things that she asks for, he will teach her. My father was pleased apparently with this destiny awaiting his child. At that time, he felt she must be talking about Merlin, whose prophecies were known from Britain to Brittany and across Europe. 
I was told of this destiny and grew up loving the idea of being a great enchantress. I live in the forest of Brosiliand, which exists between two worlds, where myth mingles with reality. In Brosiliand, if one looks beyond the surface, the courtly world of King Arthur and his knights touches upon the magical realm of fairy and can be seen in the reflection on the clear lake here. Ancient trees, healing springs, and natural doorways into the other world abound here. Magic is easy here for those inclined to it, and I have always been drawn to magic. I first met Merlin in the forest of Brosiliand at the fountain of Barenton on a beautiful spring day. I was a young girl on the edge of womanhood, drawn to the magical spring to try my hand at weatherworking. I had no sooner dipped my hand into the spring, ready to fling it on the weatherstone when a dashing young squire appeared. He stopped, gazing at me in surprise, his eyes directed to the water droplets sparkling on my hand. The fountain of Barenton is a secret, a hidden place in the ancient forest. To find a young and lovely maiden here was a surprise to him. When his eyes met mine, he was enchanted. He saw me as a water fairy, a sprite. This was my first meeting with Merlin. I wish I could say that I knew him immediately, but I can't. What I saw was a handsome youth matching me in beauty, in a place of utmost power. He held my gaze and took my hand. I let him, I have to say, I was just as mesmerized. Our water-soaked palms ignited something so powerful between us that to this day, decades afterwards, my knees feel weak in remembrance. He asked me my name and I told him, Vivienne, though later I am known as Nimue. Merlin set about impressing me with his sorcery by filling the clearing around the fountain with a vibrant illusion of singing and dancing nights with their ladies enjoying a picnic in a lovely orchard. The colors, the songs, the fashions. I was delighted by the scene and knew now who this must be. Merlin, but so young. This delighted me even more than the lively, illusory scene. This was magic worth knowing. It can happen that a lady might meet a man who is her exact complement. For me, it was like finding my other half, a half that I had not ever known was missing or gone from me until found. Then and there, before the day was finished and before I had to return to my home, Merlin declared his love for me. I had imagined this day so many times and in so many ways. When it happened, it was completely different from what I had envisioned. It might have been the magic of Diana that both of us were children of the otherworldly forest, or it might have been that I imagined it so many times, but I did remember that the prophecy said that Merlin would be unable to deny me any request. When he stated his love to me, his eyes shining and luminous lights radiating around him, I found myself responding as though to a fairy lover with whom one must get clear about the terms. 
I will love you in return if you will teach me magic. Please, everything you know. I will, of course, he said. He began right away by teaching me how to create a magical river in my mind. By crossing that river, I could find myself in a different and magic-filled world where whatever I wanted or chose would happen. I was intent. I was gifted and determined. I was insatiable for knowledge and growing in my abilities, and he was insatiable for me. We spent many days this way. As our trust built, he dropped his disguise, and I came to love him in his maturity. He built a lovely home for me at the bottom of the lake, and there I lived and prospered and practiced. He could see that water was a special affinity for me, and there I became the lady of the lake. Far too soon, he had to leave me and return to the court of Arthur. The next nine years were spent this way. Merlin would appear and resume his teaching. I would meet him in love. The forest was our boudoir. The leaves beneath the trees, our bed. I ripened into womanhood and magic under his tutelage. Diana watched. I saw her watching and wondered. Eventually, things from the outer world began to impose on us in our magical forest and in our beautiful home under the lake. Arthur, his ambitions for his people, his knights and their quests grew more and more demanding on Merlin's time. The consciousness of the members of Arthur's court became irritating to him. Merlin became increasingly weary of people and ached to retire from the world. Vivian, I'm so tired of it, he would say. I was afraid, because as he had taught me to walk the timelines, I could see the task that he was going to ask of me. The more I tried to help him by giving power to him, the more it backfired and the weaker he became. He was haunted by worry of what he had seen would happen for Arthur. He made me promise that I would use my powers, my gifts and knowledge gained from him on Arthur's behalf. How could I deny him that? And yet, in some ways, I was torn. For Arthur had made promises to the land and if he did not honor them, if he did not uphold the sovereignty of the land, there would be consequences. On the anniversary of our first meeting, after nine years, our trysting came to an end. Merlin asked from me, asked of me, the hardest thing that I would ever have to do. Not magically, that was a snap, now that all of his wisdom and sorcerous powers had been transferred to me. He asked me to create a place for him of air, which was his affinity, which to some would look like a glass tower, a crystal cave, or a stone sepulcher. In this place, he could sleep and rest and wait until he and Arthur are called back into the world. He emptied himself into me. All this I did for him without tears. I made for him a place of unutterable beauty, a place where his ancient otherworldly soul could rest and where I could keep vigil over him. 
I keep him hidden in the other world. I also vowed to him to be the complement of Morgane to balance her force in the world. So many stories about this, people putting their own minds into the stories. I said nothing. With his power, now my power, I became a magical counselor to Arthur, saving his life on more than one occasion because I could see into the future. I became the balancing force in the world to hold against the power of shadow. It was his wish that I raise and educate Lancelot du Lac in my home beneath the lake built for me by Merlin. Lancelot didn't know his parentage or that he was a child of sovereignty. When Arthur died, Morgane and I rode him to Avalon and put him in his place of healing sleep to wait until he and Merlin are reunited for something greater than the sum of any individual. I return to the forest in Brittany to be with my love, and there I remain. Thank you both for bringing this gift through. And you. This is so fun, I love this. It's fun and it's making me want to cry. It's so real. It is real. Once again, I'm delighted by how beautifully the three strands walk together in one story, each completing the other in beautiful balance. I'm curious, did you find yourself really captivated by their story during the week while you were percolating with it and writing it? I certainly was. I was captivated by that kind of love and by that kind of longing and by how it has a place in eternity, but a brief place in real time and how lucky they were to have had that time. I love that the land conspired to give them that time too. And how the land was the only being that really saw them for not what they could do, but for their true essence. I liked walking with the land all week. I felt not in the perspective of the land, except while I was writing it. But I liked the constantly checking in with the land. I love honoring Vivienne in a way that is not often presented. I love her true voice here. I love her. I love her. I am attracted to this version of her, and I was introduced to it when I was in Brittany, and the French have such a beautiful understanding of what they meant to each other and the love that was there. And I've always resonated more strongly with this version of her than the scheming, um, I, yeah, all I can say is, Great love there. Outside of time, outside of the world. It strikes me too that knowing that kind of longing and also that feeling of dissonance with the world around you, but knowing that you have a role to play in the world is something that people can relate to. I can relate to that. And also just thinking sometimes we go through lifetimes where that longing is there and it's not met. 
And so for me, it feels really priceless to have this story where this longing does get a chance to magnetize to these two beautiful beings an opportunity to be met in this way and to meet each other. And how only that configuration could have bring forth the magic for them both to imprint in a story that people are still talking about a thousand years later and we'll be talking about a long time from now as well. I just so loved hearing both your stories just in my perspective, not my perspective, but Elaine's perspective all week. I totally lost track of sort of anybody else's perspective. And so it was really beautiful for me to hear both of them and have them compliment each other so beautifully. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the land story. And I feel like the one thing both these beings, human, God beings have in common is their true love is of the land and, and their commitment to the land. And knowing that that is, regardless of where they're from, they're connected by that, the seeing of it and knowing of its magic. So really it's a love story of three because I feel like the love is there between the three of them. And it's the land that binds them together and is the witness to their becoming and meeting destiny. So I loved the land and I loved the sweetness and, and the piercing, penetrating, gazing into truth that the land can offer that is not filtered by agenda or politics or power. It simply knows who people are or what people are, if they're even people. When I first went and checked in with the land, I totally heard the land say, we were like a threesome, but they didn't know it. <laughs> like That was my impression. <laughs> yes. That's interesting to have that impression because my impression was they did know it. <laughs> and that was why he kept coming to her in Brosseliande rather than taking her, in the French version, rather than taking her to Britain because it was in this place that they could truly be themselves in this forest where magical reality was merged with ordinary reality. And in this place, both of them could be themselves and in particular be together. And the land there held them as a sacred landscape holds any other kind of configuration that comes together, whether it's a stone circle or particular mountains or a spring or a lake or what it might be, they were like that. I mean, there was such a wild part to them also. And as both of them, as creatures of the forest or the woods, as well as whatever their other gifts were, that they made the land more with their presence, it felt to me. And Gabriella, could you feel Merlin's fatigue? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I didn't really think about it until you just mentioned it, actually, but I have been unbelievably tired <laughs> all week in a way, in a way that uh, weary of things of the constant noise, of the constant encroaching change, 
unstoppable change and really feeling the longing for that quiet, for the distance and nature at its purest. So yes. And for Vivienne, there is, it feels like such deep sorrow in what she had to do. Did you get a sense of that when you're bringing this through? I was very much aware of the mixed blessing that being able to see the future brings to people. And even sometimes, and magic, what I kept seeing over and over again was never in a straight line. It always curves somewhere. It encompasses something unknown. But I really, I, I felt the the immense sadness, especially as Vivienne Nimue became more powerful. It was clear that her power was really being transferred from him as well as whatever was her own. And that was something in this um, Vivienne that she wasn't covetous of that. She was doing everything she could to shore him up and keep him going. But it was on its inevitable course of him emptying himself out in this way. Wow. Almost as if she wanted it, he wouldn't be able to do it. If she had desired his power, she would not be an open vessel the way she was. It would not be received in love. Right. And this, you know, the story of the prophecy of her birth is something that the French hold as something that they've had in their historical records, so to speak. But it makes me think of the other versions of her, of trying to spurn his advances. But if we look at this prophecy, he could never say no to her. So it kept bringing me back to this version of it, of this feels more true than some of the other ones where her taking of his power is a little bit more spiteful looking, I guess. Well, it's also assuming that she has no power of her own. Right, right. Where, you know, it seemed in that meeting that it was power meeting power in an extraordinary place. So, C, would you say that the land longed for them, longed for them coming together? Did they bless the land with their presence, with their love? Yes, I felt like the land was totally in love with them. I felt like the land felt it was the caretaker of their relationship. (laughs) I definitely saw that with their love affair in the forest, that of all the places they could be, that was where their love felt the most true and intense for them, was when they were cradled by the land. And from that side, they both feel rather feral in the best of ways. I think that's very true, yeah. Like their true nature was that of magic and feral connection, yet their great power and gifts that they had because of their feralness and their magic connection forced them into wars and kingdoms and the desires of mankind. And I saw that she really tried to uphold his visions his vision of what he could see was possible. And 
I guess for myself, I would see Vivian or any lady of the lake as a sovereignty goddess because there were more than one lady of the lake. And as a sovereignty goddess, one is not just looking at the sovereignty of the land and supporting the land, but often the role of those goddesses was the ennobling of people. I think that was very much Merlin's role, you know, not only in the raising of Arthur, but the refining of his intellect and his understanding. And it was also that lack of refinement and understanding which maybe drove Merlin to distraction later in life. The pettiness of, you know, what was really true in that human world. And when he passed into his rest and sleep, Vivienne continued that. Um, in several of the versions of Vivienne or Nimue's life, what it said is that she's always a helper. She always had something positive to offer people and not just the saving of King Arthur, but helping in innumerable ways. So it feels to me like both of them were holding that notion or that concept of the support, not only of the land or the kingdom, but also of the tending of consciousness, I guess. And that, for humans, would ultimately be a very tiring job. <laughs> you know, working with um, humans who are working along their own path of evolution. Retiring under the lake sounds like a plan. <laughs> or in a beautiful cave somewhere. Because it really doesn't feel to me like he's gone. It doesn't feel to me like Merlin is gone. He's just not available under normal circumstances to people who would not know how to see him. But I feel like there's a layer of sacred enchantment or, or longing for his wisdom that is still available to the world through a certain layer of consciousness. I absolutely felt that way when I was doing the land bit. I completely felt like they were still available, but now they have far more discernment and they don't have to be available if they don't want, <laughs> which is most of the time. Most of the time they don't want to, but they absolutely can. I, I you know, in the conclusion of my story, when I was talking about how he's, um, he's Merlin is sleeping and now Arthur is sleeping, and they're waiting until they wake when they're reunited for some kind of other cause greater than the sum of any individual. I was trying to write it as though they're going to be awaking in Britain. And what I heard from Merlin was, no, this story unfolds in many locations. This is not a story that's only going to occur in Britain or Brittany itself but we may find Merlin and Arthur emerging into an entirely different kind of scene. And I look forward to that personally. I love the way that sounds and I love the way that feels. Thank you. This was so lovely. Yeah, this was lovely. I'm really deeply touched by the wisdom of these beings. Well, I will move forward this week, definitely connecting more to the land. 
I actually have been connecting much more to the land, generally speaking, but perhaps more awareness of the connection that I'm making. I think of the place where they met, the fountain of Barenton, which is a, a spring that bubbles up from the earth, and there's a big stone that's next to it. And people do, to this day, dip their hand in the water and fling it onto the stone. And, and if you have intention and a need, then it creates a storm that arises that's air and water. That's what sticks with me is that when there's a need, there are ways to bring to us what we require. And in that place where their affinities met and where magic of the land and the waters were already there, that is a special triangular configuration. So I'll be thinking of that in this week. I think I'll be spending more time with the wisdom of Merlin and his wisdom around the bigger picture, not the immediate, not that what arises out of conflict or, or chaos, but what will remain after. I really want to look at the long-term possibility of whatever will remain and settle after the change that I can stay connected with, regardless of what the climate is today or tomorrow. Long-term, what will be true for me that is today that I'll hold dearly to remain in the future to come? What is the most sacred? That's lovely. I mean, it makes me think that one of the things that Merlin did was to plant seeds and nurture them, knowing that it might be a long time before those seeds ripen. And so it makes me think of what seeds do we want to plant now for a future that could unfold for us? Absolutely. Well, thank you, Merlin. Thank you, Vivienne. Thank you, Land. Thank you both as well. Thank you both. Thank you for the story and thank you to Saga Craft. And special thanks to the fantastic Zoe Magic for her phenomenal editing skills.